0: Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, The beauty of this location and the sweetness of the fellowship that I've already enjoyed and the greatness of the cause that brings us together, all of that conspires to make this a real pleasure for me and a great honor. So thank you so much for the invitation and for your being here. Let me just pray one more time and ask God to help me. Father, I cannot accomplish what I hope will happen on my own. So would you take away the blinders, and would you guard us from the evil one? And would you open the eyes of our heart, and would you incline us to your testimonies? And would you unite us in the truth? And would you satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love? These are all miracles that I cannot do. And I ask your help now. Make them happen. In Jesus' name, amen. The world is moving toward a day when every tongue in Europe will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the universe, either willingly because they've recognized his greatness and beauty and humbled themselves under him, or unwillingly because they have looked at him and rejected him. Either way, willingly or unwillingly, the day is coming when every knee will bow in Europe and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you have a Bible, I invite you to open it to the book of Philippians. We're going to work our way through this book, not in a consistent exposition, but rather pulling themes and texts out, themes that have been very precious to me over the years and transformed me over the years. Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 to 11, therefore God has highly exalted him, Christ, and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue (coughs) confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So every knee and every tongue, willingly or unwillingly, Poland, Lithuania, Belarus, Slovakia, Czech Republic, Germany, Sweden, every European country, every African country, every Asian country, all over the Americas, every knee is coming down. Every tongue, <clears throat> is going to confess Jesus as Lord. By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, from my mouth has gone forth in righteousness a word that shall not return. To every, every knee, to me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Isaiah forty five twenty three. So God has spoken and he, he will do it. He said to Jeremiah, I am watching over my word to perform it. So when God speaks a promise like every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, when he speaks a promise and he watches over it, he doesn't watch over it wondering whether we will perform it. He says, I watch over my word to perform it. He sees to it that his promises come to pass, including this one. So he is working and he will do it. The Lord of hosts has a day, Isaiah says, against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So that day is coming in Europe, and in every other country. That final glorious exaltation of God over every pretended loftiness, that will come to pass because God has ordained that it come to pass. Isaiah 48, my name, I defer, I defer my anger for the sake of my praise. I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Isaiah 48, 9. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel will stand and I will accomplish all my purpose." So God has promised it. God is watching over his word, and he will perform it. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. From the beginning to the end, this has been God's purpose. This is what I want to emphasize. This is not a mere result or a mere outcome of history. This is God's design, God's purpose, God's aim in history. That every knee bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Creation. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name whom I created for my glory." Isaiah 43, 7. God created every human being for his glory. That's his design. That's his purpose. That's why all of you exist. That's why everybody on this planet exists. They will glorify God. Willingly or unwillingly, they will. He made them for that. And the heavens declare the glory of God. So it's not just human beings that he designed to give him glory. He designed the heavens to give him glory. That's why he made them, so that they would magnify his name. Every star in its unimaginable magnitude was designed by God to show his majesty. That's why they all... In their billions exist, and every human being created in the image of God. There is no doubt is there what God is up to if God puts seven billion statues of God in the world. If you put a statue of yourself in the world, you want the world to know that you exist that you're great. You put seven billion statues in the world of yourself. You know what you're about. God means to be known as God, as Creator. Every knee is coming down. Every tongue is going to confess. And not only did he make the world for that, made you for that, made all of redemption for that as well. Listen to Jesus. On the night before he died crying out like this in John 12:27 Now is my soul troubled What shall I say Father save me from this hour No for this purpose I have come to this hour Father glorify your name And a voice came from heaven and said I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. That's why he he came and that's why he died that the father would be glorified in the great and glorious work of redemption. God designed the universe designed humanity, designed the cross and all of the redemptive work for the glory of His name. And every tongue will confess the glory of it someday. Every knee will bow and acknowledge it. From the beginning in predestination to the end in consummation, this has been the design. Ephesians 1.5 He predestined us for adoption as sons Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, unto the praise of the glory of his grace. That's one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. He predestined us for sonship. Why? Unto the praise of the glory of his grace. God predestined you for God. So, when we look at the book of Philippians, we see this as clearly as anywhere. And I know that all of us have our favorite glorious passages in Philippians. It's a book that is radiant with the sovereignty of God over suffering and over imprisonment. It's radiant with exquisite preciousness of Christ, so valuable that Paul says everything else is rubbish. It's radiant with the gospel of justification by faith in chapter 3. It's radiant with the gift of faith that channels all of God's power. It's radiant with indomitable joy in treasuring Christ fearlessness of witness, humility and lowliness in service, beautiful unity and striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It is a book that is radiant with all of these things and all of them are going to the glory of God. That's why we start here. We start at the end. We start at the goal, the design, the purpose of it all. And this is not a mere outcome, a mere result. It is a design, it is a purpose, it is an aim. And you see it so clearly here in chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. Let's look at it again, this time really carefully. Follow the thought. Therefore, verse 9, chapter 2, Therefore, God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, And now comes a purpose statement, a purpose clause. Why? Why did he exalt Christ? Why did he raise him from the dead? Why did he install him as Lord of all things at his right hand? Why? So that, at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God of God the Father." Now do you see what that's saying? God exalted Christ for the glory of God. God exalted Christ for the glory of God. This is God's design. God is radically God-centered. God is radically God-exalting. God is passionate about the glory of God. That's what the the flow of thought in verses 9 to 11 demand that we see and own and love. God did this for God. Chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. Look at it. This is Paul's prayer and you see the same thing again. When you pray... To whom do you pray? God. So, Philippians chapter 1 verse 9, Paul is praying to God. What is he asking God to do? To what end is he asking him to do it? Let's read it. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may prove what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's just let that sink in. Oh God, I plead with you Take the love of this people and fill it with knowledge and discernment and grant that they would have the ability to see what is excellent and grant that they would be filled with righteousness. Oh, God, do this. Grant that they would do this all through Jesus Christ to the praise of your glory. Do that, God. Do you tell God to glorify God? Do you pray, oh, God, glorify God? That's what he's praying It's the way it ends. I pray this, God, to the glory of God. So the day is coming in Europe. It is coming. When every knee will bow and every tongue confess the Lordship of Jesus Christ over all things to the glory of God the Father. Because this is God's passion above all things. God is passionate for the glory of God through Jesus Christ in Europe. That's His supreme commitment. Every knee is coming down. <laughs> it doesn't matter what your eschatological orientation is here. Premillennial, amillennial, post-millennial. Whenever you think Jesus is coming, he's coming. And when he comes and he breaks in, all the knees go down. Every mouth opens up, Lord. That's the way it is. Whenever. And it is coming. The reverberations, the global acclamation will sound that day to the glory of of God the Father. And my point, my first point of three in this message, is that's God's purpose. That's God's plan. That's God's design. God is doing that for the glory of God. This truth has proved for me for 50 years since I saw it a rock of assurance. He will not fail, and he won't fail me, but my confidence in that is not based on God's commitment to me ultimately. My confidence ultimately is based on God's commitment to God. God will never deny God. God will never be faithless to God. God will never allow God to be dishonored. Ultimately. And finally, therefore, everyone who stands with God, God is committed to that one. But underneath it, underneath his commitment to me, is his commitment to God himself. And that is clear in Philippians 1 9 to 11 and Philippians 2 9 to 11. That has been a precious truth. But for many, this is the second point now, for many, it is a problem. It is a stumbling block. God's radical commitment to the exaltation of God causes many people in the modern world to stumble. Oprah Winfrey, wealthiest entertainer in America walked away from Orthodox Christianity when she was 27 years old because she heard a sermon on the jealousy of God for his name. And she didn't like it. Brad Pitt, movie star in America, forsook, abandoned, his boyhood Southern Baptist faith because he kept hearing from God, you have to say I'm the best. It seemed, he said, to be about God's ego. And he didn't like it and walked away. C.S. Lewis, before he became a Christian, complained about the psalms, constantly telling us to praise God. He said, it sounded like an old woman desiring compliments. Eric Reese who wrote the book, he's a professor at the University of Kentucky, he wrote the book, An American Gospel, rejected the Jesus of the Gospels because of the sentence, unless you love me more than your mother and your father, you can't have me. And he said, it sounds like an egomaniac, walked away from Jesus. Michael Prouse, columnist for the London Times, turned away from God because, quote, tyrants puffed up with pride crave adulation. I don't want a God like that. Walked away. We got a problem. God's radical God-centeredness God's commitment to the exaltation of God is making people walk away. It always has. It always will. Should it make you walk away? Should you be embarrassed? Are you one of those people who hearing the first half of this message say, that's not my God. So, the ultimate goal of God is the exaltation of God. It creates an alienating problem. And now, finally, the third. The, the reason I'm starting here in Philippians is not only because Philippians creates the problem, but Philippians, of all the books in the Bible, has the answer. For me personally, it has the sweetest answer and the clearest statement of the answer in all the Bible. So now I'm going to direct your attention to Philippians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Now keep in mind, here's the problem. The problem is, all over the Bible, we looked at Philippians 1, 9 to 11, Philippians 2, 9 to 11, a sprinkling of texts in Isaiah. But all over the Bible, God is committed ultimately to the glory of God. Human beings hear that and say, egomaniac, and walk away from biblical Christianity. What's the answer? Because there is no doubt God is totally committed to the name of God being exalted in this universe. And every knee bowing, every tongue confessing that that is true. What's the answer? Let's read verses 20 and 21, and I'm going to take it apart carefully and draw some things out, and here I just plead with you to think with me carefully. Don't just wait for my conclusion. That would be a huge mistake. One of the best teachers I ever had says, don't read commentaries for their conclusions. Read them for their arguments. And that's the way you should listen to sermons because preachers are not God. If they can't argue successfully from the Bible for their points, you should pay no attention to them, which is why we do biblical exposition and not just chatter away about our opinions. So let's look at verses 20 and 21 of chapter 1. My eager expectation I preached on this sermon my first Sunday at my church 36 years ago. This is my passion. My eager expectation is that Christ will be magnified, honored, shown to be great. Christ will be magnified, honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live, which corresponds back to the word life, is Christ. And to die, which corresponds back to the word death, is gain. So, Paul is explaining here how Christ will be magnified in his body, his bodily life, in his living and in his dying. Both ways. Let's take them one at a time and think, how, do, how does he explain how living in the body will make Christ look great? And then secondly, how dying in the body will make Christ look great? Because that's what he says his passion is. So let's take the The living half. So my eager expectation is that Christ will be magnified in my body by life. For to me to live is Christ. What does that mean? If I stay alive, he's in prison. And he doesn't know at first, will I get out and live? Or will I stay in and die Either way, I want Christ to look great. And now he's talking about life. Okay, what if I get out? What if I live on? And he gives the answer down in verse 25 and 26. Starting in the middle here, verse 25. I'm sure, I'm confident, I will remain and continue He's coming to the conviction slowly that he's not going to die right now. I will remain and continue with you all. Okay, what's going to happen if he lives like that? For your progress and joy of faith. So that, another purpose statement, I'm going to bring you joy in faith in Christ so that in me, my being alive in your presence, in me, you may have ample cause to glory or boast in Christ Jesus at my coming to you again. So there it is. What, what will it mean for him to live? It will mean he goes to them, he preaches, their faith rises, and they boast in Jesus. They make much of Jesus. And that's what he meant back in verse 20 when he said, For me to live is Christ. If I live, I will be the means of many people boasting in Christ. Verse 26. But don't miss the link of joy. I exist, I live for the progress and joy of your faith. By my living, you will have joy believing in Jesus. And thus you will boast in Him. So evidently, Paul makes much of Christ in living by bringing about the joy of people in Christ so strong that they boast and glory exult in Him. And So that's what it means to live as Christ. What about death? What about the death half? Let's read it again, verses 20 and 21, leaving out the life part, and just do the death part. My eager expectation is that Christ will be magnified in my body by death, for to me to die is gain. Now notice the little word for, because. He's explaining how it is that in his death, Christ will be magnified. Why, Paul? How, how will that happen? That Christ will look glorious as you die. And he says, because to me, to die is gain." There's a missing premise in that argument. What's missing? Well, why will it be gained? Why will death be gained? And you know the answer to that. Verse 23, my desire is to depart, to die, and be with Christ, for that is far better, meaning gain so my desire is Christ be be magnified in my dying because in my dying I experience Christ as gain that changed my life how could it not Do you see what he's saying? How do you make Christ look magnificent? You, you count up all the losses of death. You lose, and this is before the resurrection now, just dying. You lose your family. You lose your body. You lose your friends. You lose your planned retirement, dream. You lose everything on this earth. And what you gain is Christ alone. And you put those two in the balances. Everything the world has to offer over here by staying alive. And Christ over here. And the scales go down. Christ is gain. If you die like that, if you are lying in a hospital bed, with a radiant expression because of what you are about to gain with all the losses that you love standing around your bed, your wife, your children, your husband, your friends, all of them standing around weeping over your dying and you are radiant with expectation. Christ will look great in that moment. He will look so great and He will be great so that's how he magnifies Christ in his dying. Sum it up like this. Christ is magnified in your dying when in your dying you are satisfied in Christ. Is that I'm asking you now, is that a fair paraphrase of Philippians 1:21? And 20 and 21. Is that a fair paraphrase? Because if it's not, my life is built on sand. That's a big question. <laughs> I base my whole life on that sentence: "Christ is magnified in my dying. If my dying, if in my dying, I experience Christ as satisfying. He's enough. He's enough. If I have Him, and I lose all, I have all. It's enough. When you feel that, He's great. He's great in your life. If you don't feel that, He's not great in your life. And you can't magnify Him if you don't feel that. That's what I built my life on. I've called it all kinds of names. Every book is about that. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Christ, in God. I have no idea where you're coming from on this issue of of the heart and the emotions. But I know there are millions of Christians who don't get this. Who don't get this. And I tremble for them. Christ is magnified in my living when I am the means of other people being happy in God. And Christ is magnified in my dying when others can discern He is satisfied in Christ. It's enough. I count everything as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. let me sum it up one more way. Christ is glorified in you when he is more precious to you than all that life can give and all that death can take. Christ is magnified in you when he is more precious more satisfying than all that life can offer and all that death can take. There is no conflict, therefore, between God's self-exaltation and my longing to be happy. This was the great discovery. The problem of God looking like an egomaniac. What are we going to call that now? That God continually lifts up God. God continually magnifies God. What are we going to call that if it's not megalomania? I'm going to call it love. What would you call it? If it's true that God's glory is magnified most in my being satisfied, then for Him to communicate Himself, exalt Himself, display Himself, lift Himself up, is all for my good. It's all for my satisfaction. And I make Him look great, which is what He wants, when I am most happy in Him, most satisfied in Him, treasure Him above all things. Which means, not only is there no conflict between my happiness, full and lasting, and God's self-glorification. No conflict this is a means to this if i am not happy in him i don't glorify him if he's not gain in my dying he's not glorious in my dying which means if he's going to satisfy my soul he must lift up his glory for me to embrace and see and enjoy the whole the point of reading this book is to see him, know him, and delight in him, be satisfied in him, be radically changed by him so that I can take any risk anywhere in the world because I got nothing to lose. So back to our, our friends, no Oprah Winfrey, no Oprah Winfrey, if God were not jealous for your affections, he would be indifferent to your misery. No, Brad Pitt, if God did not demand that you see him as best, he wouldn't care about your happiness. No, Mr. Lewis, as you later came to see and teach us so well no god is not vain in demanding that we praise him he's loving in demanding that we praise him because in praising him we experience our deepest joy and he gets glory in our joy no mr reese if jesus didn't lay claim on greater love than your parents have or your children have or your spouse have. If Jesus didn't lay claim on a greater love than your family has, you would lose your everlasting joy and your family with it. No, Mr. Prowse, God does not crave your adulation. He calls it forth as your greatest pleasure. God's God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is the highest virtue and the greatest act of love. If you call attention to your glory, suppose you argued like this, well, the Bible says be imitators of God. So, if God seeks His glory, I should seek my glory. That's the devil reasoning. He is so sly. Here's, Be imitators of God. God lives for His glory, you live for His glory. The reason it is not loving for you to glorify yourself is because if you glorify yourself, you distract people from what satisfies their souls. God. If God lives for his glory, he doesn't distract anybody from what satisfies their souls. He constantly says, I am the only one. I am the fountain of life. I'm the river of delights. I'm the bread of life. I'm the wine. I'm the food. I'm the rock. Come to me. It's the only place you'll have everlasting joy. You can't talk like that. You're not God. God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is the highest virtue and the most loving act because that's all we need is God. It's not megalomania. It's love. And it changes everything. That's the third point in the message. Let me just give you a few examples. What is conversion to Christ? It's not just believing the highest truth. It's embracing the most valuable treasure. Is that the way you lead people to Christ? I have a treasure for you hidden in a field. Sell everything for this treasure. And you will be so happy. What is saving faith? It is seeing and savoring that treasure. I see it. I see it. I embrace it. I take it. i base my whole life on it. That's faith. What is hell? It's a place of suffering prepared for people who refuse to be happy in God. What is evangelism? Not only personal persuasion about truth, but pointing people to a treasure. Jesus Christ, more valuable, more satisfying than anything they could ever possess. What is evil? How would you define evil? Not just breaking God's law. Evil is the suicidal preference for the dry and empty wells of the world over the living waters of God's fellowship. Evil is suicide. What is self-denial? You do see, don't you, that the implication of what I'm saying is that If God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him, therefore you should seek with all your might to be satisfied in Him. So what becomes of self-denial? Oh, it's real. Deny yourself the wealth of the world so that you can have the wealth of being with Christ. Deny yourself the fame of the world so that you can enjoy God's approval. Deny yourself the security and safety of the world so that you can have solid and secure safety in Jesus. Deny yourself the short and unsatisfying pleasures of the world so that you can have fullness of joy at His right hand and pleasures forevermore. What is money? Money. Money is a cultural means of showing where your treasure is. What is love? Love is the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of others. What is ministry? I'll end with this. What is ministry? And I'm asking you now, what is your ministry? There are hundreds, I suppose, of ministries, kinds of ministries in this room. What is it? Every ministry in this room is described in 2 Corinthians 1.24, not that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy. Every ministry in this room should say, to live is Christ. I, My ministry exists for the joy of Europe. And so we do whatever it takes at any cost to ourselves to bring as many people into the God-exalting satisfaction in God as we can. So Christ will be magnified in Europe. He will when Europe is most satisfied in God. When He's more precious to Europeans than all that life can give and all that death can take. So Father... As we turn now to the rest of our seminars in the day, magnify your great name. We want to happily join you in your purposes to glorify your greatness. We want to join Paul in saying, to live is Christ and to die is gain, as the ground for saying. My eager expectation and hope is that Christ would be magnified in my body whether I live or whether I die. So perform the miracle now in this room. Perform the miracle in this room of making yourself our supreme treasure. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.